Amen. Well, first of all, thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us this morning. Thank you, Becky, for, for sharing that object lesson with our kids and teaching our kids so faithfully. Uh, today, we are continuing, actually finishing up in this series that we've been going through over the last five weeks called Overcoming. And ironically, as we've walked through this series, hopefully you've heard us beat this drum over and over and over that reality is we don't overcome anything. The victorious Christian life is not about us overcoming anything. It's about trusting that Jesus Christ is our victory. And so to finish up the series, I thought on this day of like celebration and life that we would talk about death. I'm, I'm, I knew that you guys would be excited about that too, as, as, as excited as I am. Uh, reality is nobody likes to talk about death, do we? Uh, it's awkward. It, it's uncomfortable. It reminds us of loved ones that we've lost. It's a subject that's just it's as, as taboo as talking about like sex and politics, right? You just don't bring it up in normal, average conversation. I mean, unless you're one of those people that just loves to create awkward and uncomfortable moments. But the, the problem with not talking about these kind of subjects is what we often do is we distort them. So, for example, death becomes shows about zombies in The Walking Dead, right? Or death becomes something that we just get so desensitized to because we see it all over the place in our video games and in our TV shows and, and movies. Or we just simply sugarcoat death. We, we, we look at it just as simply like, the bridge to the afterlife, or it's even a gift because it stops all the suffering that we experience in this life. The Bible never, ever sugarcoats death. God doesn't make light of it at all. I can't see Jesus and, and the Apostle Paul cracking jokes about Peter and the pearly gates. I just don't see that happening. Death in the Bible is always serious. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, death is a curse. It's a consequence of the fall in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls death our enemy. In Romans 6, he says it's, it's a wage. It's something that we've earned because of our rebellion and our sin. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus shares the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man who died an unbeliever describes death as anguish and torment. Peter in Acts chapter 2 describes death as agony or, or even the, the, it's like pains of childbirth. Death is not to be made light of. We see in Scripture two different types of death. You, of course, there's the physical death, but Scripture also speaks of a spiritual death, a worse death than, than our physical death. John in Revelation 21 talks about unbelievers experiencing this second death. And so if their first death, their physical death, wasn't bad enough, the second spiritual death he describes as being, it's like you're getting cast into a lake of fire. And so it's understandable why people fear death. While some people, it paralyzes them. It's understandable why a lot of people try to sugarcoat death. I mean, who wants God's cursing judgment? Who wants to look forward to God repaying them for their sins? Who welcomes defeat at the hands of a ruthless enemy? Who longs to experience unending agony? I mean, who likes to think of a second spiritual unending death. And so we fear death, rightfully. We instinctively kick against it and, and try to push it back. No one, apart from the 
seriously ill or those who are just in utter despair welcomes death. So aren't you glad you came to Mercy Hill for Easter, right? Is there any good news? I hope so. I hope so. And so how do we not lose heart when we think about death? Well, that's the subject of the the passage that we're going to take a look at today. And so uh, you can either look in your, uh, on your phones at the order of worship that we've got for you with your digital bulletin. Uh, we'll have it up on the screen. Or you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to take a look at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context. And so at the very beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, we read this, Therefore, having this ministry, talking about the ministry of the gospel, by the mercies of God, we do not lose heart. Okay, so that's the context. He's encouraging them not to lose heart. And we see that same thing at the, towards the end of chapter 4. Again, Paul says, so we don't lose heart. And that, that flows right into chapter 5. And so what we're looking here, at, as we look at this passage, is Paul encouraging this broken, messed up church, Church of Corinth, very messed up church. And he's encouraging them, say, hey, look at my lowly life. Okay, look at how messed up my life is. Look how much I've been through. And yet, you know what? You don't have to lose heart in the face of death, our mortal enemy. And he's going to give us great reasons why we don't have to lose heart. So let's pray and we'll dive into this passage. Father, we desperately need your spirit, to make our hearts believe. Father, you promise that faith comes from hearing your word. And so I plead with you right now as we walk through this passage that you would establish and strengthen and sustain our faith so that we would not lose heart, even in the the face of death. Lord, help us to have a greater appreciation and even a a greater joy in the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 7. The Apostle Paul, writing to this church, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake." so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And so we're going to stop there. We'll come back. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to this passage. The first encouragement that Paul gives us so that we don't lose heart is he reminds believers who they are. And he says, look, if you're a believer, if you're united to Christ, you have this treasure in a a jar of clay. So as believers, we have this divine treasure. The Spirit of Jesus is inside of us, dwelling inside. That should just blow our minds. 
that the creator of the universe has in his infinite wisdom chosen to pour his spirit not into vessels of like gold and silver, but into vessels that are clay pots, earthenware, fragile, broken, weak, frail. Paul explains in his first letter to the church uh, of Corinth that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and, and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing that things that are, so that no human being, might, being uh, in might boast that they might not boast in the presence of God. In other words, he's made us this way for a purpose so that he would shine out of us. L listen, in our society, weakness is thought to be a deficiency, right? And so we strive to be strong and to stay strong. But Paul is saying here, our weakness is actually not a deficiency at all because it's our weakness. In our weakness, it, that's what shows the surpassing power of the glory of God. Yeah, clay pots may be fragile, they may be weak, they may be frail, but that's actually what makes them beautiful. Go ahead, show this picture. Uh, it's because the glory of God is able to shine through the brokenness. That's a beautiful image for us. Later in the same letter, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about his ongoing struggle, this thorn in his flesh, and he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with the weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so Paul is saying the only reason that we're able to endure in this life, it's not because of us. Our endurance is not because of our great effort or how disciplined we are or work ethic or, or some great faith that we're able to muster up on our own. Our endurance is not based on anything that we do or anything that we think. It's solely based on Christ's spirit in us. And our brokenness is what magnifies the brilliance of this. And it's the brilliance of Jesus coming out of us. And so here's the thing. As we get older and our bodies begin to fail and become weak, what happens? God's glory shines out of us even more as we're forced to rely upon Jesus even more. And so we don't lose heart. And Paul goes on. Look, look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so Paul is saying here that, look, we can't help but talk about what we've come to believe. It's too good for us to keep to ourselves. When we understand the significance of the resurrection, we can't help but talk about that. But here's the thing. We can't fully appreciate the resurrection if we don't recognize the seriousness of death. I mean, if death is no big deal, either is the resurrection. To the degree that we see the, the, the badness and, the, and the, the, the tragedy of death, to that same degree we will see the beauty and the glory of the resurrection as we believe in it. 
if Jesus truly did rise from the grave, we can trust, we can bank on that promise that one day we will also rise and be with him. And notice the resurrection isn't simply about defeating death. It's about being able to live in the presence of our Savior. The curse of death is not simply the cessation of life. It's separation from the presence of the Lord. So physical death, it's it's a constant reminder of this curse because our loved ones are stripped away from our presence. They're cast away from our presence, right? And spiritual death is even worse than that because it's a casting away from the presence of Christ. This is why the resurrection is such good news. That even though the wages of the sin of death, we deserve to be cast away from God. Jesus lovingly took what we deserved and he gives us life instead. He was forsaken so that we would be accepted. And so Paul is able to say, verse 16, so we don't lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So even as our bodies are wasting away, our souls are becoming renewed, are being renewed day by day. Because they're united with Christ. Paul's not trying to make light of your afflictions here at all. He's not saying just buck up and it's not that bad. Just try a little harder. He's not saying that at all. Paul is amplifying the glory that awaits us in the resurrection. He's saying even our greatest agonies in this life will seem light compared to the the weight of glory that awaits us when we get to be with Jesus for all eternity. Paul says that the afflictions of today actually are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. The more difficult our time is in this life, the sweeter the next life is going to be. And so we look to the things that are unseen, the eternal, because we know that this life is fleeting. But heaven is eternal. And this leads right into chapter 5. Remember, there was no... Uh, divisions in the original text. And so this is meant to be read right after the end of chapter 4. Look at the title heading, Our Heavenly Dwelling. This is the hope that we have in the resurrection. Look at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put, to put our heavenly dwelling If indeed, by putting it on, we may be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal be swallowed up by life. And so what's happening here is Paul's giving us another really good image to think about what's going on in our lives right now. He's comparing our earthly home or our earthly bodies to a tent They're temporary shelters, right? Easily torn. Adequate as long as the weather's decent, right? If if you go camp, if you go camping, you go tent camping specifically, you're probably not going because you look forward to the safety and security of a tent, okay? Cam and I have tried tent camping uh, for many years. 
and try to enjoy it. In fact, we're going to give it, give it another shot this summer. But inevitably, every time we go tent camping, we end up grumbling <laughs> about not sleeping very much, right? And, and, and we long for our bed, our home, where it's comfortable, where we can get some rest. And we groan about our tent camping, not because we want to get rid of our tent, but because we want something more than our tent, something more sturdy, something more comfortable, something that, some place where we can rest. And so this is what Paul is saying here. In this tent, our current bodies, we groan, not that we want to like tear off our skin or, or, or our clothes, but because we want a heavenly body. God has wired us, hardwired us for eternity. We long for these glorified bodies, bodies that no longer experience aches and pains in this life. We long for a dwelling that we no longer will age in or, or, or die. We long for what is mortal to be swallowed up by the immortal. And notice what Paul emphasizes. He emphasizes that our new eternal dwelling is not made by human hands. Uh, this is the same kind of language Jesus used. Before he, he died, he, he went to his disciples and said, Look, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you could be with me in that place. Well, Paul says the same thing here, basically. Verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And listen to this. Who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Who has given us the Spirit. So this treasure that He's put in us is the guarantee. And I think this is the heart of the passage right here. Our assurance of salvation is so huge when it comes to thinking about death and not losing heart in the midst of thinking about death. Listen, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you will only find rest in Christ when you think you are obeying His law. When, you think, when you're performing well and you think you're being... And listen, you're not, okay? You're not obeying all of His law. You, you're not. You're just not. And so to find peace, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you're, if essentially what you're going to do is you're going to become like a Pharisee, right? Where you add laws on top of God's law to try to prevent yourself from breaking the law, and then that doesn't work, and so you end up dumbing down the law so that you can meet your own expectations, which you still fail at in the end. But at least you feel a little bit better about yourself. It just doesn't work. They had a... The Pharisees, they had a feeling of assurance, but it was a false assurance because it was based on their own law and the ability to keep their own law. In this letter, though, Paul here, he is trying to give the church in Corinth assurance. That's how they're going to face death, right? By knowing and knowing and knowing for sure where they're headed. And remember, this church is a messed up church. And so notice the assurance that he instills in them is not based on their behavior. It's not based on their performance. It's not based on their feelings. Often we look at this, this passage and we equate the spirit that's given to us uh, as this guarantee. We equate it to this like ushy-gushy feeling that gives us this inner sense of assurance, right? That's not at all what Paul is talking about here though. Our assurance is not based on anything that we do or anything that we think or anything that we feel. Thank goodness, because my feelings are all over the place. Our assurance is fully based on what God has done, 
what he has freely given us and promised us, it is all grace. Even the faith to believe it is a gift from God. Paul says, the spirit living in us, that's our guarantee. Literally, the down payment is what that means. The whole reason you put a down payment on a car is what? Because you are fully committed to taking possession of it, right? And that assures that nobody else is going to be able to buy it. Earlier in the same book, Paul describes the Spirit as a seal. In other words, something that is meant to protect us and keep us until we receive the promised inheritance of eternal life. Then in Ephesians, Paul brings these two kind of ideas together. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is why Paul can say, verse 6. Look down at verse 6. Because of this assurance we have, because of the Spirit dwelling in us, this treasure and pots of clay, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For those of us who are united to Christ through faith, this is the hope that we have in the resurrection. Eternal life is to be home with the Lord, the God of the universe. Think about this. The God of the universe shed his own blood so that we, through faith, would be able to live with him in his house for all of eternity. Again, that should blow our minds. Believers can be of good courage because we know that this is not our true home. This is temporary. We're in a tent right now. If you're united to Christ, you can say, like Paul, I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He also said, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're united to Christ, it means you can say like David in the Psalms, for one day, for one day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. In the, in the context of that psalm, he's not talking about heaven, he's talking about the temple, but the temple was meant to be a foretaste of our heavenly home. Likewise, what do we have here? This is meant to be a foretaste of our heavenly home home. The church family is a taste of our true home. And so as we come together and we remind one another of the promises of God and we encourage one another to, to believe in what Christ has done for us, we get a taste of what home will be like. Yeah, we're, we're not, it's not the full meal, okay? We're not perfect by any means, but it's meant to be that taste that 
that wets our, our palate and, and, and want, causes us to want more. Yes, death is awful. And for an unbeliever, it should be scary. But for those who are united with Christ, I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, death is delicious because Jesus is near. If you're here and you're already united to Christ through faith, let me encourage you, rest in these promises. Believe the good news that Jesus is alive and he is our victory. 1 John 5, 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We need to be reminded of that often. It is so easy for us to forget that. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer, maybe you've never come to the point where you have relied upon Jesus for your salvation, I want to encourage you this morning. Believe the good news that Jesus saves, that Jesus is God in the flesh, came and lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserved. He paid the penalty for sin with his own blood and he rose from the grave conquering death, conquering sin. And so stop relying upon yourself and start relying on Jesus Christ to save you. When you do that, he will forgive your sins. And you can find rest in these promises too. And if you don't have a church home, we would love to welcome you. And we would love to welcome you home. Or at least give you a taste of it here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have offered us such an amazing hope. Would you help our hearts to believe it? Would you help our hearts believe that one day, if we're united with you, we will be raised with you and spend eternity with you? I pray that our hearts would leap with joy at the thought of the resurrection and that in the face of death even, we would be reminded that there is great hope in the gospel. Thank you for saving us. I pray for those who right now maybe listening online or here in this room who have never trusted in you. I pray today that they would re rely fully on you for their salvation, that they would embrace the good news that you have done everything necessary to pay for sin and you have risen from the dead proving that you have conquered death and conquered sin. Help us trust in you and not in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.